0: Well, the the history of ideas is replete with attempts to discover the causal relationships that obtain in nature. It's the central project of the scientific mission to determine how B is brought about by something antecedent to B, which we nominally refer to as its cause. But the concept of causation has had quite a varied history even within the sciences. Just as the concept of objectivity has had quite a varied history, even within the province of science. I might illustrate this uh, briefly. Um, If you go to the point early in the 17th century where microscopes became available, this was an absolute boon to a community of botanists, particularly Dutch botanists, very famous for their rendition of plant specimens. These are sold today in in tea tea shops and so forth. And now to be able to get with photographic accuracy, even the microstructure of these plants was a tremendous boon to many and indeed to, to, to botanists. Now, what did they do? Well, they got these drawings now that were extraordinarily accurate. There's the specimen. And now you get a landscape artist to put the specimen within the context in which it's normally found. That being the objective representation of the item, that is to say, objectivity then meant the full contextual setting in which something is found how do we think of objectivity today we think of objectivity today something is objectively studied what when it's decontextualized when you separate it out from its context when you put the subject in a dark room you know with uh, with with minimum stimulation except the particular stimulus to which you expect the subject to respond similarly in chemistry and physics and so forth you roll balls down inclined planes not in the middle of a traffic jam but in a laboratory where everything else is quote controlled now I mention this just to say that uh, one needn't take sides but but one should understand that that the sense of objectivity as understanding the object in its natural context is quite different from objectivity understood as removing something from its natural context in order to eliminate all influences except the one you happen to be interested in that's what I mean by the concept of objectivity itself undergoing changes even in the history of science, even in the practice of science. And so too notions of causation. Certainly all philosophy students know that the chap who put the ball in play on causation, at least as it would be treated for the next 1,700 years or so, 2,000 years, um, was Aristotle with his famous fourfold account of causal relationships and of course today we tend to smile uh, patiently as we rehearse the old dead Greeks notion of formal causes and final causes and material causes never quite getting around to the fact that the only causal modality that science has any reason to be interested in is efficient causation one billiard ball hits another the second one moves Bob's your uncle. That's all we have to say about it. We don't have to go into some scheme about the order of nature and what its intentions were, etc. Well, what got Aristotle thinking otherwise on these matters? Because after all, he had a keen eye for scientific facts. He was a tireless observer, um, one of the great naturalists of all time. As a chap who died in 322 B.C., we allow him to make a mistake or two. Well what we ordinarily mean by a cause is this, that in the absence of which something else would not take place. Now suppose you have a tourist's weekend and you go to Rome and as with everyone who goes to Rome as a tourist, the first place you go is for an overpriced cup of coffee in the Piazza Navona where you can sit and look at that extraordinary and spiteful item that Bernini put in front of the chapel. He put it there so everyone would look at it because he had not got the commission to do the chapel itself. So there you are staring at the fountain of the rivers and uh, reaching in for another 7 million lira for a second cup of coffee. Right Now, suppose the question is, how does that get brought about? That is to say, what caused that? As Aristotle says in the physics, if the art of shipbuilding were in the wood, we would have ships by nature. So you can't just leave a lot of rubble on the ground and over the course of cosmic time get the fountain of the rivers. So, so you, you have to ponder how something like that is brought about. Well, obviously, if there were no matter capable of retaining a shape given to it you could not get that sculpture. Now that's the sense of material causation. You've got to have the right kind of stuff for a certain kind of thing to be brought about. And if all you mean by cause is an event or object or condition necessary for something else to be the case, necessary for something else to be brought about, which is to say in the absence of which you could not bring it about, then clearly one causal modality is material causal modality, the material cause. Now, similarly, an item like that is answering to some purpose decorative celebratory spite whatever aesthetics a place in the grand scheme of things so one sense in which you get the fountain of the rivers is that the fountain of the rivers is the endpoint the goal the terminus ad quem toward which all of these earlier anticipatory maneuvers had been undertaken. You chose the material, you chose the sculptor, you chose the site, you did all this. You did all this for the sake of that. And if you did not have that plan, that goal in mind to begin with, there would have been no basis upon which to undertake the first chisel blow, do you see? So one sense in which uh, we identify the cause of the fountain of the rivers is that it realizes what Bernini had in mind all all along. It's the end toward which these other uh, initiatives were taken. And that's the sense of a final cause. It is the cause last realized, but first conceived. First in the order of conception, last in the order of realization. Now, by the time we get to the 17th century, the age of Galileo, Newton, and the like, much of this kind of thinking has been abandoned because science now, look, uh, many ways of committing acts of libel, particularly within intellectual domains. I think I mentioned to you the most reliable way of libeling others is brevity. So, So forgive me for the brevity. Let me just say that By the time you get to the age of Galileo Newton and company, and and Descartes actually, mechanism is the model, mechanistic principles, mechanical arrangements, clocks and water wheels and, and little places you can stand in Parisian gardens and when you step on them, you release a flow of water going through small uh, objects such that statues turn and bow and do pirouettes and so forth. And why should we think that human activity is based on anything other than the flow of such liquid or airy mediums through nervous tubules, Descartes' reflex machinery, do you see, based on mechanical principles. Well, I say, once you're satisfied with mechanistic modes of explanation, then efficient causation is the only causal modality that really matters from a scientific point of view. Well, that's pretty much where things were when Hume addressed the question of causation. Now remember what what Hume's overarching position is, the overarching position, is that the contents of our mental life can be divided into relations between and among ideas and matters of fact. And if the question is, how do we go about understanding the facts in the external world, the facts that a science of human nature should address itself to. There there really is only one source and that is experience itself. So you can forget about innate ideas even Locke conferred too much interior mental life for for Hume to be satisfied. Hume thinks the entire game can be played out at the level of elementary or simple sensations Impressions of sensation and impressions of reflection and how these are parlayed into ever more complex ensembles. Well, what then about that most crucial idea, the idea of causation? Now, in the handout I gave you today, there are passages from Hume's treatise on how he would have us understand the formation Of the idea of a cause and I'll be taking some passages from 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 his uh, his later essay his position doesn't change materially on that before I get to those passages I do want to brief you on latest developments in Hume scholarship Uh, some of it quite breathless actually there is the so-called new Hume uh, who's been presented to us by a number of significant scholars, including perhaps especially uh, Galen Strawson. Uh, time being limited, let, let, let me say that the the major division between the new Humeans and the, I don't want to say the old, some of the old Humeans are quite young actually, but 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 th- those taking a more uh, conventional Uh, position on Hume has to do with the extent to which Hume really is skeptical about causes. Now um, I have not devoted years and years to David Hume. I am loath to take sides in uh, a dispute of that kind so let me waffle a bit. Hume is not skeptical about causes. But but I'm not sure that says very much because all that says is what Hume himself says. Hume says that when he leaves his house and goes out into the hurly-burly of the world, his thinking about causation is very much what anyone's thinking about causation is. And Hume, the good utilitarian that he is, says that you... you Couldn't get through the day otherwise. Of course, this is the way you think about these things. Now, how about Hume, the metaphysician? That Hume is notoriously skeptical about causation because why? Because he has already attached himself to the ideal theory, the copy theory. And when Hume sees one billiard ball strike another billiard ball, he tells us, quote, I must own, I do not see some third term betwixt them. That is, at the level of experience, there is nothing that he can recall, account, account for, reduced to a copy of a cause. There's movement, contact, movement can't see a cause. When he looks at the billiard table before him, all that he can report is the motion of one ball striking another ball and the second ball having motion somehow imparted to it. So one can say that, that the conventional view of Hume as skeptical about causation, refers to Hume's metaphysical account, shall I say, his metaphysical hyphen psychological account of how we ground our concept of causes. And of course, you must be skeptical at that level because it's non-evidentiary. We, we talk as if we understood how A causes B, but we can't know how A causes B because there isn't any experiential or evidentiary basis upon which to record the presence of a cause. So it's a kind of inference that we make. More than that, in the history of talk about causation, it has been taken for granted, he says, even by some of the wisest among us, that the relationship between a cause and an effect is a necessary relationship. That in fact there are no effects without causes. Causes necessitate their effects. Now what could that possibly mean at the level of experience? What is it in the experience that conveys necessity? There's an answer to that question. Nothing. So how is... Necessity imported into our causal accounts. And as you will see in some of these passages, it's by way of a certain habit of the mind. That is, the necessity is something we impose, not something that we discover. Now, let me, let me turn to his inquiry concerning human understanding, part one There are no ideas which occur in metaphysics more obscure and uncertain than those of power, force, energy, or necessary connection, of which it is every moment necessary for us to treat in all of our disquisitions. So, first thing we recognize is that when you get to a concept like force, we say that A causes B because uh, it has the energy or force to bring this about we don't have any direct observation of energy or force these are very complex notions he says when we look about us toward external objects and consider the operation of causes we are never able in a single instance to discover any power or necessary connection any quality that binds the effect to a cause and renders the one an infallible consequence of the other there simply is no evidentiary basis upon which to impute causal powers to anything." He goes on to say, just in case you think it might come about by way of reflection, the mind feels no sentiment or inward impression from this succession of objects. Consequently, there is not in any single particular instance of cause and effect anything which can suggest the idea of a power or a necessary connection it just isn't there since therefore external objects as they appear to the senses give us no idea of power or necessary connection by their operation in particular instances let's see whether the idea be derived from reflection on the operation of our own minds now this gets to a quite interesting offering by Hume that Reed will pick up on. I shall be covering this next week. And we can trace this to to Locke. Locke grants that we have an immediate awareness of ourselves as the causal agents of our own actions. Reed, by the way, will, will spend a fair amount of time on this. He thinks that this is an idea that occurs very early. I should use an audiovisual aid to suggest how early it might occur. Look up here. That is to say, an infant, probably in intrauterine life, late in intrauterine life, already is showing some evidence of a recognition of itself as bringing about movements of a certain kind. In fact, birth itself is initiated by. Movements. And certainly in early infancy, well, you, anyone who's observed very, very young infants, what are they? They're spending all their time doing things like this. They're looking at their fingers, they're moving things closer and further away. Now, Reed thinks that, um, well, I shall get to Reed next week, but Locke himself says we do have. awareness of ourselves as being causally or agentically responsible for our own actions and Hume is willing to grant that much but he's only willing to grant that much on the basis of experience in fact he says imagine one who in the middle of the night is overtaken by a palsy let's say by a stroke he awakens In the morning fully convinced as he was when he went to sleep the night before that he is able to bound out of bed and go make the coffee and do all these things until he tries to do it and then discovers that he has lost the power of locomotion so from the fact that one has a conception of oneself as the origin of one's own actions that conception itself is formed experientially, and it can be lost, because now after repeated attempts to move, and discovering that it's no longer possible, one now has quite a different idea of one's agentic powers, namely, I've lost them. You gain them and lose them the same way. You gain them and lose them by experience. now what kind of experience does it take well Hume is quite clear single events won't do it what you need are constantly conjoined events whenever two events have been so constantly conjoined in experience by a habit of the mind we come to regard the occurrence of the first as a, we expect the first to result in the second. That is, our concept of causation is forged by way of constantly conjoined events. We associate B with A because A and B have occurred together frequently in time. And Hume actually lays out what he takes to be certain laws of mental life, laws of association. And you should note these because these two will raise some very interesting questions about Hume <coughs> on causation. All other things being equal, two events are regarded as causally related when they occur together more rather than less frequently. So frequency turns out to be one basis upon which associations are formed, their strength, I say, all other things being equal, the strength of the association being based on the frequency of the concurrence. All other things being equal, two events are more firmly associated when they resemble each other. Like events are more firmly associated than unlike all other things being equal two events are more strongly associated with each other when they are contiguous in time and space that's the constant conjunction part they occur together closely in time and place of course one question that arises out of this is how A Humean will account for singular causal events. Can anyone think of a singular causal event of note? Would you like Yes, one time only. One time only. Can you think of one? The big... yes well maybe only one chernobyl but you you, well i I would give you one that's even bigger than chernobyl very big big bang yeah a big big a big bang um I, i i i was never particularly troubled by the big bang i mean why not Um, I'm not much of a sleeper but the Big Bang never would have kept me awake anyway but I will tell you something about the Big Bang that would keep me awake with it uh, all the laws of physics came in with it now that's you see if they hadn't then nothing would have (laughs) Then it just would have been bang and the whole thing probably would have just fizzled so, so that, it began with a bang. I, I'm out of my element here. I should ask some of my philosophy of physics colleagues to explain it. But, but given the bang and, and all the differential equations, <laughs> I think that was, as tricks go, that is a doozy. There's no question about it. So that's the sort of thing you, you lie awake at night and say. Oh wonder how she pulled that off or who's ever responsible for these things must be extremely clever certainly at the B Phil level Uh, uh, so um, so there is a question then about how singular events are to be understood now there are any number of singular events that occupy us in fact, uh, most of the consequential events in history turn out to be one of a kind. And so I do want to give you an update on on a, a Humean perspective on causal explanation, extremely influential in philosophy of science for many years. Now I think overtaken by rather different views, though, though still, something of a gray eminence when we talk about scientific explanation. And that is the model of scientific explanation promoted by by Carl Hempel, uh, long referred to as Hempelian explanation, sometimes referred to as the covering law model of explanation. And it is uh, quite Humean in its overall perspective. If you want to read uh, the best of Hempel on this subject, some of his papers were pulled together back in the mid 1960s uh, in a collection named after one of his most influential papers titled Aspects of Scientific Explanation. He was an emigre to the States and uh, uh, was at Princeton for many years. Well, Hempel raises the question, how do we how do we classify undertakings as scientific? That is, he's addressing what's sometimes referred to as the boundary problem. What is it that takes a mode of inquiry, a mode of explanation across a boundary so that we properly regard it as scientific? Bless you, as scientific. And you can imagine the candidates for solving the boundary problem. Well, there must be measurement. Well, we're measuring all sorts of things every time you buy a pair of shoes somebody's measuring something or every time you get a kilo of potatoes somebody puts it on a scale. You, you, measurement qua measurement can't be the necessary and sufficient condition for establishing an activity as scientific. Sometimes it's stated rather heroically that the difference between science and everything else is that science is addressed to the facts of the real world. I say this is a rather a g- gaudy assertion. <laughs> I, I should think most of us most of the time are concerned with the facts of the real world. People who routinely avoid those are generally medicated. So, so I don't think that's particularly helpful. Hempel thought that the boundary is crossed at the level of explanation. That the difference between a bona fide scientific undertaking and undertakings that are not scientific is in the very logic of a scientific explanation which is to say that unique to science an event is explained when it is shown to be an instance of a universal law known to be true Now I can again recur to audiovisual aids if you want to look up. I brought some equipment with me for this lecture. You ready now? Is everyone attentive? Right here we are now. Ready? 20p. It was worth 14 by the time it hit the floor. Um, we want to account for that. Here's an account. All objects attract each other with a force directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. The 20p coin is an object. Planet Earth is an object. The two attract each other with a force proportional to the mass of the coin and the mass of the earth and inversely proportional to the squared distance between the coin and the gravitational center of the earth. Now, if that law is true, then necessarily the coin goes that way. Mind you, it's not an inference from past experience. It's a deduction we deduce the event from a general law which is why the model advanced by Hempel is sometimes referred to as the nomological deductive model of explanation now that the law must be true is based on the obvious fact that a false law explains nothing so so, so and that of course immediately raises the question well how do you know it's true and that is the scientific project you just keep testing the alleged law under as many and various conditions as you can and as long as you've not found exceptions this is the best thing you've got to go by by way of explaining events constant conjunction is everywhere in this do you see because the, every one of those tests is going to be when A, then B. When A sub 1, then B sub 1. And, 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 and until such time as A sub n does not give you B sub n. For example, at uh, relativistic velocities, this thing is going to start to break down. Why? Because at those velocities, mass is not constant the way the model presupposes that it will be, do you see? Now, when when Hempel's work started making the rounds, and by the way, it made the rounds beyond the developed sciences because Hempel argued that this is as applicable to the social sciences, to economics, psychology, history, that, that these are candidate sciences. And what they have to do is work out general laws that then allow... The deduction of specific economic events, specific uh, historical events and so forth. he even applies the model to psychoanalytic theory. I mean, if, got, if you want to make the case that this thing can embrace almost anything, that, 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 that try Freud. I mean that, uh, of course, of course, in a way, Freud will psychoanalytic theory will do anything you want it to do. You know, it's, it's, it's one of its. Weaknesses is that it explains everything. Um, so, so, what about history? Now, the philosopher of history, William Drey, um, published a rejoinder to this entire thesis um, un- un- under the title uh, "Explanation and Reason in History." Of course, the first thing that Dre wants to make clear is that historical events are non-recurring, so you have this singularity problem. You see, you, you can't add up a large number of battles of Waterloo, divide by N, and get the average battle of Waterloo. You, you can't say, I'm working on a general law of history, could we do that Waterloo thing a few more times? But then there's something else. You also can't get the Battle of Waterloo without Napoleon. No, actually, Napoleon, not just a short fellow wearing a funny hat and keeping his hand inside his jacket. It's got to be that person in that context fighting a particular battle during a particular season, under a set of constraints, facing an opposition, changing strategies as the battle proceeds. You you all understand this. This is not space physics. And the model is simply inapplicable any time the uniqueness, the eccentricities of participants must be presupposed. And of course, that's going to cover almost everything in the domain of human interactions, human social and civic life, political life. The histories that we write, the art that we create, etc., etc. The the model is simply off limits. If, If that's the right model of science, then this puts a wedge between science and just about everything we'd be inclined to refer to as the humanities and the social sciences as well. Now, there would be exceptions to that. You surely could, let's say you could, at least through the back door, you could drag in uh, the brain sciences. But once you've dragged in the brain sciences, whatever it is that allows them to qualify in the Hempelian domain is what's likely to remove them from that part of the humanistic domain in which you really would like uh, brain science to explain things, explain such things as, why did Napoleon choose Belgium? Yeah, I mean, th- 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 things, things like that. Um, so, so these are not criticisms of Hume, but they, but they do raise a question. Once you take a Humean perspective, once you, you ground an enterprise, in an evidentiary base that must be committed to observation must be empirical in principle. Because the Hempelian model says scientific explanation applies only to objects and events that are empirical in principle. Now you may need a more powerful telescope, you may need a, an accelerator that's greater in power, but there's nothing in the phenomenon itself that would render it inaccessible in principle at the level of observation. Now, I say, once you you grant all that, then you can raise questions about, well, where is a, a model of that sort likely to find its limits? And I think in that dispute, it, it looks like a rather tired dispute today, though it shouldn't look tired. It, it's older, but it's... It's still alive and well. That dispute between the Hempelian and Dre vision of what explanatory model is right for what sorts of phenomena, that's every bit with us. And uh, the, the manner in which you get out of that bind is usually by way of one or another reductive strategy. You try to show that, yes. We can't explain Napoleon losing a battle in Belgium. But we certainly can explain what it is that got Napoleon to do X, Y, and Z. We certainly know how it was that Napoleon digested carbohydrates. He did that by way of the Krebs cycle, right? we certainly know what is required if Napoleon is going to get that hand inside the jacket he's going to need a motor cortex he's going to need an extra pyramidal system he's going to need motor neurons coming out of the ventral surface of the So, so we know that don't we is it preposterous to suggest that similar mechanisms and processes will account for Napoleon forming a particular kind of strategy And are those processes not themselves reducible to more elementary electrophysiological and biochemical events, etc., etc.? So you can see where this is going. Now, what might the William Dray School say about something like that? Well, of course, what happens with the reduction, do, do listen carefully, what happens with the reduction let's do the reduction all the way so that it's all now in the handbook of physics and chemistry everything there is to know about living bodies is now known we've got it in the thickest book ever composed and it's laid out alphabetically and there are drawings and and uh, and it's on YouTube and so forth right. guess what just happened the phenomenon went away you, you no longer have a battle of Waterloo. You've got a lot of stuff, do you see? You've got pages and pages of stuff. Now you start pitching. And by the way, if you're starting out fresh with just the book, and I say, all right, here's the book. This is everything that ever went on or could go on in a body called human. Here it is. Would you please put together... Napoleon's loss in Belgium you can't even get Belgium out of the book so the idea that the reductive strategy is the way to answer a Dre type criticism of the covering law model looks good until you realize that the first casualty in that reductive strategy is the phenomenon itself you've just lost what it was you set out to explain you know, my being elliptical, look, there's a sense in which Napoleon lost because there were more dead French there than not, all right? So you could say, all right, the best explanation of the loss is bodies are dead. But you see, in, in any, that's neutral across military defeats. So it doesn't pick out that one. It just says dead soldiers are generally not good fighters so the reductive scheme doesn't quite work now we've now seen two chapters in Hume we've seen Hume's copy theory which for many constitutes skepticism about our knowledge of the external world which is to say on Hume's account we do not have direct access to anything in the external world therefore everything we refer to is a representation and there is simply no way of determining the veridicality of that representation in order to establish that our mental representations of the external world are veridical we would need some non-representational mode of calibrating the external world and then seeing how our representation matches up with it, but that is ruled out by the, by the ideal theory itself. And then with peace extended to uh, all of the warring parties in the House of Hume scholarship, there is skepticism about, about our knowledge of causes. In fact, it's more than skepticism about our knowledge of causes. It is the denial that we have knowledge of causes. Rather, what Hume puts together is an account of how we form causal concepts. And causal concepts turn out to be the product of an associative mechanism in which events that occur together frequently by way of a habit of the mind come to be regarded by us as causally related. He could even point to, as Reed will, he could even point to Newton in this regard. Because, as Newton explains in the Principia, with respect to the gravitation laws, Newton says look, what we've discovered are the rules by which gravity works. We've discovered the laws generated. Why gravity works the way it does, we do not know. And you could say this about any fundamental uh, principle of nature. Now, am I allowed at least occasionally uh, to bring Aristotle back into the discussion? Um, Once you rid yourself of the notion of final causes, once you rid yourself of the idea that certain goals or purposes are fulfilled by way of natural phenomena then of course you do have to say things like well we can we can work out certain hume type uh, causal laws but uh, you know why gravity works that way how could we possibly know well you could possibly know if you take the long view of the nature of nature itself and whether nature should be understood in some fundamentally organic sense of itself realizing certain ends. By the way, in case you're wondering Aristotle was a very very poor Christian. He died so soon. So this isn't one of these nearer my God to the accounts. It's just an Aristotelian perspective on the nature of explanation itself and the recognition that the mere identification of coincidences, no matter how firm, cannot constitute an explanation. It just allows you to make a prediction, but for a bona fide explanation, you have to inquire into the efficient, the formal, the material, and most importantly, the final cause what is it that Napoleon was setting out to achieve in the first place because if you don't address that question then the entire episode in Belgium could have been staged by Monty Python could have had soldiers on broomsticks it might have been a film location think of the think think of the conclusions you'd reach if you saw a substantial number of people wearing ridiculous white curly wigs in black robes and referring to a chap behind a big desk as my lord and citing Bracton or Lord Cook. What is this all about? And unless you understand the relationship between the very traditions of advocacy, the traditions of British common law, the setting of the courtroom, its solemnity, the manner in which dress of a certain kind and address of a certain kind constitutes an integral part of preserving an atmosphere congenial to deliberation and justice. Unless you've done all of that, the event looks simply comical you see. Now we do these things all the time. Some of you even find time to read novels. Why are you reading a novel? It isn't really about anything, is it? You see. And the answer is, yes it is. It may even be about everything. It just isn't about anything at the level of experience. It's at the level of imagination. I see. So what's involved here? Just relations among ideas? I reject the word just no it is relations among ideas Hume goes so far as to say you know even those we convince ourselves reach a level of platonic abstraction accessible only to refined intelligence and reason and what does he offer us as an, as an illustration geometry and he says no 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 that's experiential also you see So next week, when Dr. Reed takes a look at this, reflects on Dr. Saunderson, the blind Cambridge mathematician who knows more of Euclid than anyone in this city right now and has never seen a rectilinear triangle and never will, we will revisit the question of whether the best understanding of geometry is in terms of our experiences with drawn objects.